done talking about people coming late reminded me of my first public speaking experience. Was, uh, I came to faith because my brother, well, my family started going to church because my brother was dying of leukemia. And uh, after I came to faith, I became part of the church and part of the youth group. And the youth group had at that church responsibilities every sunrise service. So at sunrise service, uh, they would do something, and then when they got done with just kind of music and all the preliminaries, as people call them, the pastor would preach. And I was asked to be sort of the MC for this. And I was absolutely terrified. I just so nervous. And we started the service at the time it was supposed to start. And we did everything we were supposed to do in about 15 minutes. And the pastor didn't show up. He had forgotten to set his clocks ahead on Easter Sunday. And so after about 15 minutes, maybe 20, I got up and said, let's pray. And I dismissed everybody. (laughs) And it was over. And the pastor came walking in as everyone was walking out. And he was saying hello, wondering what was happening. Uh, Hebrews 7, last week we were in the waiting room. You may remember this week we're in the classroom, uh, big time. Uh, this, this is the passage that our author said was hard to explain. These are the things that he said, I'm going to wait about this for a little bit, and we're going to talk about those today. Hebrews chapter 7, first 10 verses I'll read for us now. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. <clears throat> he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name in Hebrew means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because Melchizedek met Abraham when Melchizedek met Abraham Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Our Buckwald once wrote about the trouble he had getting through to important people on the telephone. And he complained that such people are always guarded by a secretary who asks things like, may I tell him who's calling? Or what is this in regard to? So Buckwald didn't like being put off. And he says he started replying, just tell him that this is his insurance agent. His house is a total loss, but the insurance will cover 50%. <laughs> He said that always got him an immediate connection with the important person he was trying to reach. The author of Hebrews wants us to know that because Christ is our high priest, we don't have to jump through hoops before we're granted access to God. Paul grasped that same truth and put it this way, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Now, back in chapter 5, our author was about to turn a corner in his argument, his sermon almost. This is a letter that is a sermon 
that is a letter. He was just about to make that turn and start telling us about the order of Melchizedek, but then stopped abruptly and said, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Slow to learn translates something like slothful. You're slothful, you're lazy to learn. He then launched into this stinging warning about laziness and an urgent call to diligence. That warning and call comprise a long parenthesis beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, and going through the end of chapter 6. With the beginning of chapter 7, our author picks up where he left off in chapter 5. It's as if the parentheses never occurred. This Melchizedek, he says, was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. Now, it's important to remember how he introduced this subject prior to the parentheses back in chapter 5. He was not simply talking about Melchizedek, but about the priestly order of Melchizedek, to which Jesus belongs. <laughs> During the time our author was writing, there was a great deal of interest in Melchizedek. People were fascinated with him, and legends were springing up about him. Some teachers, for example, claim that Melchizedek was really an angel of great power. But the author of Hebrews had no intention of entering that kind of speculation. He only brings up Melchizedek, and this is important, he only brings up Melchizedek so he can talk about Jesus. See, for Jewish people, the priestly order, especially the high priest, was an integral part of their lives. The high priest made atonement for them. The priest gave them access to God, but now they're Jesus followers. And it wasn't clear to them how they were to relate to the priesthood, and especially to the high priest. They had been taught that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for their sins. And that left questions in their mind. Should they still go to the priest to offer sacrifices? Should they still take part in the day of atonement? If Christ was their atoning sacrifice. Their lives had revolved around these practices since their earliest days. What were they to do about these things now? Now, it's important to realize how our author answers those questions. He does not say... Now that you're a Christian, you no longer need a priest. He knew they did. Instead, he tells them that they have a better high priest than they did before. Jesus himself, who comes from a better priestly order. The priesthood of Jesus and its ramifications for their life and faith was the hard-to-explain issue that he was talking about back in chapter 5. And he's now ready to make clear. Sometimes Bible teachers never get to Jesus because they, in this passage because they get caught up in Melchizedek. He's a mystery, and we all want to solve mysteries. Was he some kind of Christophany? Was he an appearance that is of God's Son in human form before he became a man in the Incarnation? Our author doesn't ask that question, and he doesn't answer that question. And to me, it seems unlikely. He uses an unusual word in verse 3, which the NIV translates as like, but is actually a verb and means to make like. It's never used to describe a theophany or a Christophany, and it's hard to see how it could be appropriate to say that a pre-incarnate revelation of God's Son could be made like God's Son. But again, our author's concern is not primarily with Melchizedek, 
but with the priestly order of Melchizedek. He wants to impress upon his readers the truth that the Jewish priestly order, comprised solely of Levites descended from Aaron, is not the only priesthood that God approved. There was also the priestly order of Melchizedek. And not only did an approved priestly order exist outside of the Levites and outside of Judaism, it was superior to the Levitical order. Our author offers five pieces of evidence to prove that point. First, Melchizedek, unlike Aaron, was not only a priest, he was a king. The king of righteousness and the king of peace. In the order of Melchizedek, mercy and truth meet together. This is Psalm uh, 85. And righteousness and peace kiss each other. The order of Melchizedek is the order of the priest-king. Something unknown and even forbidden in Old Testament Judaism. Next, verse 4, Abraham, father of all Jews, gave Melchizedek a tenth of his goods. In other words, he tithed to Melchizedek. In Judaism, people tithed to the Levites, and the Levites in turn tithed to the priests. But Abraham acknowledged Melchizedek's superiority by tithing to him. Our author takes that argument a step further and says that Levi, the tribal head of the Jewish priestly order, paid the tithe to Melchizedek through the person of Abraham. So not only was Melchizedek superior to Abraham, the priestly order established through him was superior to the priestly order established through Levi. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, the tithe, paid the tenth through Abraham. Further, Melchizedek possessed authority to bless Abraham, and since the lesser person is blessed by the greater, verse 7, Melchizedek was clearly the greater person, greater even than the patriarch of Israel. I don't know if we can understand what a first century Jewish reader would feel at those words. To him, no one was greater than Abraham. Yet, this is only the first of a series of shocking truths our author is about to make. Finally, our author uses the fact that Melchizedek had no recorded genealogy as proof of his order's superiority. Verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, or made like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, I don't think our author is saying that Melchizedek came into being without father or mother or that it, he never died. Rather, I think he's using the silence of Scripture on those points. Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14. He blesses Abraham, takes a tenth, and then he disappears. And then he appears in Psalm 110. Very briefly, uh, Hebrews is really a sermon on Psalm 110. He appears very briefly in Psalm 110, but is never mentioned again. I think our author is using the silence of Scripture on those points to make a comparison to the Son of God. You see, in Judaism... A genealogy was everything to a priest. Unless a man could trace his line back to Aaron, he couldn't be a priest. In fact, after the Jews returned from Babylon, many people were barred from the priesthood because they lost their genealogical records in the exile. They couldn't prove they were descended to Aaron. 
But membership in the priesthood of Melchizedek didn't depend on genealogy, as we're going to see. So understand that this section, the first 10 verses, is not so much about Melchizedek as it is about the order of Melchizedek. And there are three things our author wants his readers to understand. One, there exists a divinely approved priesthood outside the Levitical order. Two, that order, the order of Melchizedek, is superior to the order of Levi. And three, Jesus is a member of that order. Now, our author has already mentioned Jesus' priesthood six times in this letter before coming to chapter 7. But in his readers' minds, a priest could only come from the tribe of Levi and the line of Aaron. And yet they knew that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He could be Messiah. He could be king of Israel. But he could not be a priest in their minds. As far as they were concerned, he was disqualified from the priesthood. Our author corrects their thinking. Oh, Jesus is a priest. Indeed, he's a high priest, not in the order of Levi, but in the superior order of Melchizedek. Now, I told you Arthur was going to make some shocking claims as he tackled the things that are hard to explain. The next section of chapter 7, which runs through verse 19, includes one of those shocking claims. Let's read it, uh, verses 11 through 19. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people. Why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there's a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said, Jesus, belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests, and what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever, this is Psalm 110, verse 4, in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Now let me remind you, take you back to what's been going on for these readers. The recipients of this letter have been having a hard time. They have believed in Messiah Jesus, but they're being pulled back into a Jesus-less Judaism by friends and family and pushed back into it by a rising tide of persecution. So our author explains to them something they've never even considered something that would have shocked them. There is no Jesus-less Judaism to go back to. The time of the Levitical priesthood has come to an end. Now, our, our author knew that his readers would balk at that claim. They had been taught from earliest childhood that God set the tribe of Levi apart as special and ordained the family of Aaron to serve as his priests now, our author would agree with that completely, but he argues that the Levitical priesthood was and had always been, by design, temporary. It served until the coming of Messiah, and then its role was over. 
The argument here is that the Levitical priesthood could not provide for humanity's deepest need. Therefore, a different kind of priesthood was necessary. See how he proceeds. The Levitical priesthood could not, verse 11, attain perfection. That is, it could not fulfill its purpose of granting men access to God. So it was necessary for another priestly order to take its place. But, and here is the far-reaching implication of this, which is even more shocking. For the priesthood to be transferred to a different order, the law itself must change. Because the law and the priesthood are all wrapped up together. Verse 13, where there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. The law was the unifying force and governing principle of Judaism. To say that it must be changed, or to go further, as our author does in verse 18, and say it must be set aside, was earth-shattering. He is, in effect, arguing that these Hebrew Christians have nothing to go back to in Judaism. The law was intended to lead people to Christ. It had done so, and now its job was complete. So Paul can bluntly say, Christ is the end of the law. There was no law to go back to. And since the Levitical priesthood had fulfilled its role, there was no going back there either. These readers were people with one foot on the dock of Judaism and one foot in the boat of Christianity, and the boat was moving. They had a decision to make. But our author says to them, before you decide, you need to know that the dock is collapsing. Now, that illustration isn't quite right. Judaism did not collapse. It was transformed. Transformed by the coming of the Messiah. See, it's not a question of Judaism on the one hand or another religion on the other. It was a question of a Christless faith or a Christ-filled one. It was our author's belief that Christless Judaism had come to an end, not because it had failed, but because Christ had come. The Levitical priesthood was based on ancestry and bloodlines. The Melchizedekian priesthood was based, verse 16, on the power of an indestructible life, which was evidenced in Jesus by the resurrection. The Levitical priests were born into the priesthood, but the Melchizedekian priest was made a priest by God's oath. Now let's read the last section now, verses 20 through 28. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Remember, better is the key word of this whole book. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints his high priests men who are weak, but the oath, which came after the law, 
appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. All this fits Hebrews' overall theme that Jesus is better. That word appears twice in this chapter, first in verse 19. Because of him, a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. What the law could not do for us through the priests of the old order, Jesus has done for us. He has brought us to God. Much more about that in the next two chapters. With the transition to verse 20, and by the way, in Hebrews, transitions are always incredibly smooth. But if we divide it up the way I've done, with the transition in verse 20, the last section of the chapter begins. The first section, the first 10 verses, are given to the historical Melchizedek. But after verse 10, discussion of the person of Melchizedek is replaced by discussion of the priestly order of Melchizedek. And then in this last section of the chapter, Melchizedek disappears altogether. He served his purpose. He's reminded readers that there's a God-ordained, non-Levitical priesthood that actually predates Judaism. Others, this is verse 20 now, became priests without any oath. But he, Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. There's that word better again. The Jewish priesthood functioned around God's covenant with Israel, introduced at Mount Sinai, and spelled out in the Mosaic law. But Jesus' priesthood functions around a different, a new covenant. Chapter 8 will go into greater detail about that. But this is the covenant God promised through the prophets. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Jesus understood that he was God's agent in establishing that long-promised covenant. Remember, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, during the Passover meal, took the cup, probably the cup of blessing, and gave it to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink it. Verse 22 says that Jesus has become the guarantee, the surety of a better, referring to the new, covenant. Scholars think the word guarantee comes from the prefix en in Greek, in, and the substantive guan, meaning the hollow of the hand, in the hollow of the hand. The idea is that a person making a promise brings something in his hand, security, to guarantee that he'll keep his promise. God has promised salvation in a kingdom. He's promised to right wrongs and heal the earth. He's promised to glorify his people. These are big and, frankly, hard-to-believe promises. So he has put up security, offered collateral, What did he give? In the language of the apostle, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is God's guarantee that he will keep his promises. In the hollow of his hand is proof that he's good for what he promised. In the hollow of Jesus' hand, you will remember, 
there is a hollow spot. Five bleeding wounds he bears, we sang this morning, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. You ask for proof that God will keep his promises. Jesus opens his hands and shows the prints of the nails. It is proof enough. Amy Snapper, children's ministry director, is always writing notes on her hands so she won't forget things. I bet if you look at them, they're a little blue. Is there a note on there right now? No, okay. (laughs) Sometimes the note might simply be a name, a child for whom she must do something. When Jesus opens his hands, we see that on his palms, he's written the names of his children too. He will not forget his promise. He will not forget his children. He will not forget, but we often do. We forget the promise. We forget the guarantee. In our alarm, we fear that God doesn't see us, that he's forgotten all about us. We say like the people Isaiah wrote about, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. But God answers, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? And in our panic, we say, it happens. Even mothers forget. They abandon their children. Then God answers, though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And the engraver's tool was an iron nail. He will not forget. If you are his, he has written you on the palms of his hands. Verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests of the Levitical priesthood since death prevented them from continuing in office. The ancient historian Josephus counted 83 high priests from Aaron to the destruction of the temple. Every one of them died before the work was finished. But, verse 24, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely or save altogether those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. We often hear people speak of the finished work of Christ, by which they mean there's nothing we need or can do to complete Christ's atoning work. But here we have the unfinished work of Christ, Not on the cross, but before the throne. He always lives to intercede for us. He represents us. That's priest's work to God. And he does so as one who understands us through and through and loves us from beginning to end. That, verse 26, is the kind of high priest we need. If you were raised as a Protestant or were raised outside the church, as I was in my early years and came to faith later, or as an adult perhaps, in an evangelical or fundamentalist tradition, you may have heard it said that we don't need a priest. We don't need a priest to go to God for us. Well, don't you believe it. Ours is always and inescapably a priestly religion. We need a priest. And we have one. 
holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I'll let you in on a little secret that our author will save for later. Ours is not only a priestly religion, it is a religion of priests. We not only have a priest, we are priests. And though Scripture doesn't spell it out, I believe that we too are ordained in the order of Melchizedek on the basis of the power of an indestructible life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's pray. God, these things are hard to explain and hard to understand. But I pray that what our mind struggles to grasp, our hearts will hold on to. That we have a priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. A glorious priest before the God of glory, our Lord Jesus. Give us hope in him. Through his name, amen. We're going to stand together. The song is Join All the Glorious Names. I had the privilege last night of spending a couple of hours with a brother in Christ. And as he talked about Christ, as he talked about who God is, it just gets your heart moving. God is, is amazing. And let's praise the name of Jesus. glorious names of wisdom, love, and power that ever mortals knew that angels ever bore. All are to mean to speak his worth to pour to set my Savior forth. Jesus, my great high priest, Offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. Thou art my counselor, my pattern, and my guide. And thou, my shepherd, art, oh, keep me near thy side. Nor let my feet e'er turn astray to wander in the crooked way. My Savior and my Lord, my conqueror and my King. Thy scepter and thy sword, thy reigning grace, I sing. Thine is the power. Behold, I sit in willing bonds beneath thy feet. <clears throat> Our
prayer helpers will be here if you have a prayer need. They're here after every service. Just come out and find one of them and just tell them what your prayer need is. They'll pray with you right now and pray for you during the week. Let's pray together now. God, I pray that you'll open up to us what it means, not only that we have a priest, but that we are priests. And even before we grasp all of what that means, I pray that you'll busy us about our priestly work. Even this week, Lord, engage us in your service for the sake of your Son, our glorious Lord Jesus, through whom we pray. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours now and forever. Amen.